has rescued us. Coming back to what is right, but in from our in our Romans, what is the first part of this is dealing with what? It's the condemnation. It's the condemnation, but what it is the wrath of God, right? Okay, it's the wrath of God. That is the danger that we have been rescued from. Okay? It's, 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 and, and so it is for that that we give praise to, to Christ. Okay? Alright, so um, quick review. Kind of give us a, uh, a context for where we are in our study. So we're giving consideration to the book of Romans, 16 chapters, which is a full treatise, not a full, it is the most extensive treatise on the gospel in the Bible. It is a, it is really, it's a sermon that the Apostle Paul sent ahead to Rome with a a view to it preparing uh, the Roman for his arrival. This is his heartbeat. This is what's driving the Apostle Paul. Um, it, it, so it's a, a sermon on the gospel. Now what we've done is we have roughly broken that into three main categories. The first section, really from chapter 1 through 3, about 320, 1920, is about the condemnation wrath of God, both passively and actively, on how many people? All. All. And, that is, and Paul labors that point. This is for, this wrath of God is upon the religious and the non-religious. It's on everybody. <clears throat> in, in chapter 1, it's really it's a demonstration of, as it were, the passive wrath of God that is being displayed in the life of the pagans because he has given them over to their own desires which have grown up in them because they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay, so this is, we we talked about the passive wrath of God here. And we noted that there would also be a future wrath, a more active wrath of God. Then we talked about this is so. This is chapter one. This is more the moralist is chapter two. Remember that guy? He was that guy. He said, "Yeah, you bunch of pagans, you deserve the wrath of God." And Paul said, "Wait a minute. What did you just say? You're you're guilty as well." And then we got to the third chapter, which is a chapter that addresses specifically the Jews in this argument about the wrath of God. And Paul is saying, "The wrath of God is on you too." Because you had the law of God, knew the righteousness of God, and yet did not fulfill it. And the summary statement of all of that is um, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the whole world is accountable to God. All right. So that's, the, that's this first section. Now we've entered into, last week we began entering into the second section. This is, one, three, this is about 324 through the end of chapter 5 and we're really talking about 
the basis of justification. So we've got condemnation and justification. And chapter 3 is about the basis of justification. And remember, there's, a, there's the, the, we could also, and maybe I'll do this next week, I'll show that there's really two arguments. And it's about the, the demonstration of the righteousness of God to not just the world, but to the entire, the entire cosmos. Remember, and the righteousness of God was under question. Why? Because it looked like everybody was getting away with their sin. And so people are questioning God all the way back to Habakkuk's day and beyond that. Even to Job in his day, questioning the righteousness of God. And what we are going to see is that this right here, this section about the basis of justification answers that question. How can God be righteous and not deal and look over all of their sin? Okay? Right? That's a demonstration that will deal with the demonstration of God's righteousness for not punishing sin, sinners. And now this section is about the righteousness of God being displayed because he saves sinners. And this comes up with the Habakkuk question. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why do you deal favorably with the wicked? All right. All right. And then we're going to and then the rest of this is about the we'll get into this right here is chapter four, the application of justification. Chapter five, the results of justification. And then six through the rest of it, I'll just leave off. But that is for the deals with our sanctification. All right. That sets the context. So now let's continue. Pick up where we left off last week. And the text says, this is Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. All right. All right. Now, Last week when we gave consideration to this passage, uh, the, the central questions that we dealt with is, um, we, we talked about the fact that God's wrath demonstrates his righteousness, God's law demonstrates his righteousness, and propitiation demonstrates the righteousness of God. And we asked the question... If there's all this language starting from chapter 1 and verse 17 through this point, if there's all this language about God publicly displaying his righteousness, to whom then must it be displayed? And here's the answers that we we arrived at. Okay, It is to those who protest God's gracious dealing with sinners... 
Okay? It's not fair. Why are they, why are they getting away with that? Um, then we, we looked at uh, it is to the heavenly beings. This is Ephesians 3.10. Surrounding the throne that, that are seeing through the church the display of the righteous wisdom of God. And then to Satan himself who is what? The accuser of the brethren. Right? And we left off talking about the fact that when Satan accuses Robert Koneman before God, he's right. I am a sinner. I have sinned. And I deserve the wrath of God. And yet the wrath of God does not abide on me. Why? Why? That's where this comes. That, that's where this comes in. This right here is why the wrath of God is not on me, and God is righteous. And Satan is standing there and saying, "But he is a sinner. Yes, guilty. Aren't you fearful? No." Do you know why I'm not fearful? Right here. Alright? Because of propitiation. So tonight, our the whole our whole time tonight is devoted to really dealing with that one word. This is a this is a important word. And we're gonna we're gonna deal with that and understand how it is that that, what it is, and how it Enables me to stand with confidence before God when Satan is telling the truth about me. All right? So, um, let's talk a little bit about propitiation from the Old Testament perspective. Okay? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm just going to, we're not going to look at these texts tonight. This is kind of, you ready for this? This is kind of homework. Okay? This is, this is kind of homework, okay? You kind of look at these texts and you'll get a fuller... Because I'm going to talk... I'm, I'm going to give it kind of to you in a kind of an oral way. But the, these texts lie behind everything that I'm going to say tonight. So, the, the, some of the key texts are going to be Leviticus chapter 16. It's a key text in understanding propitiation. All right? Um, and then Hebrews... Chapter 9. Okay. Hebrews chapter 9 is a New Testament perspective on Old Testament propitiation being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Alright, so here's really what the old, old kind of the Old Testament talks about. First of all, what the, the word propitiation is an English translation of a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that basically refers to you ready for this? I'm drawing the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? I know this is going to be awesome and amazing. Okay? But uh, roughly you've got some, you know this just for extra credit anybody got in, anybody remember what's in the Ark? 
Three things. Aaron's rod that budded. Ten Commandments. Some manna. Okay. All right. But on top of it, that's an angel wing. That is awesome. Weren't they a little bit longer than that, Rob? Hey, 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 hey. Those are angel wings. Okay. Because we all saw. Uh, yeah, we, we all Indiana saw Jones. Indiana Jones. Okay. All right. All right. So this top portion. Okay. It is referred to, it's translated in the New American Standard, okay, and I think in the English Standard Version as well, as the, the mercy seat. That's what that is called. That is the place of propitiation. That's what that, okay. Now what would, what would happen, the propitiation is a process that culminates in a place, so if you read through passages like Leviticus 16 and other passages, you're going to find that there's a whole system of sacrifices that were prescribed by God in His law to, um, to, deal, to cover temporarily the sins of the people. Okay, that's what this is. This is the place of covering. Okay, so and, and you know you you've read you you know enough of the Old Testament. I don't need to rehearse all that. I mean, it's taking of the blood of the goat, right? Or the lamb, taking the lamb's blood, and then the priest would come into the holy of holies where this place is first in the tabernacle, just a tent, and then in the temple. And they would sprinkle that blood in a specified manner onto the ark, the mercy seat. And then God, for that year, on the Day of Atonement, would covenant that he would not punish the people for their sins. They were, they were atoned for. Okay? That's, that's what that is. And then there were other aspects to it. There was a what was called a scapegoat. Right? Well, let me, let me back up. Before you get to the sprinkling of the blood, what would happen is they would take a, they would have corporate offerings as well as individual offerings, and the priest would take this animal and place his hand on the animal's head, and what that was was a, tr- was a symbolic transferring of the sins of the people onto the animal, so that when the blood was shed, that was for those sins that of the people, and they were sprinkled on there. And then you had the scapegoat that he did the same thing. He put his hand on that, and then they shoot him out into the wilderness. And that was to symbolize that the sins are out of the camp, but they're still out there. It's wandering around. Okay. So all of those, that whole Levitical law is, that's really kind of this whole process in the Old Testament of propitiation. So why does God not wipe out Israel completely? It's because there is this place called the mercy seat, place of propitiation. Now, when we move, all of those, and this is part of what Hebrews 9 will tell you, all of those processes um, 
uh, places, furniture, furnishings, and all of those things were what the writer of Hebrews would call shadows of things to come. And they all corporately taken together point forward to Jesus. Okay? So that the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, has been replaced by the person of Jesus. And the cross stands symbolically in relation to the mercy seat, the the seat of presence of God. And between between God who's here, the people who are here, is this this blood. Okay? Alright, so so when we move into the New Testament, this is what Hebrews is going to tell you, which is the interpretation of all this Old Testament law in the New Testament, is that Jesus is our propitiation. And remember, our text says what? In his blood. So there is still blood that is... For, and in Hebrew thought, in the Old Testament, blood is the life of the thing. And, and, and so this represents the loss of life. So propitiation is this loss of life. Jesus lost his life, his blood, for me. Okay? Now the result of propitiation... And this is where, and, and there are people, there are people who who disagree with what I'm about, with what I'm saying. And they don't, they don't like it. This theological is wrath appeasement. And I think it's wholly appropriate for that to be here because what is one through three? It's talking about the wrath of God. When we get to chapter five, guess how chapter five opens? It says, having been justified. By the blood of Jesus, we have what? Peace with God. Okay? The wrath has been abated. I no longer have to deal with the wrath of God because Jesus dealt with it for me. All that is wrapped up into this. Now, now what I want to do at this point, okay, is to, uh, to show you the depth Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll write it. I'll draw another one and sign it okay, for you. Cool. <laughs> it is all, I want to show you through the text of Scripture the multi-dimension nature of propitiation. This is not a flatline issue. This is not just some flatline theological argument. Rather, this has contours that have, that have, that has uh, legal dimensions, physical dimensions, soulish dimensions, and emotional dimensions. Okay, all right. Because I want you to fall in love with this. Okay, I, I want to fall in love with this. This is grand. This is glorious. This is as this is the. I mean, this is ground zero of the gospel. All right, so let's talk about the legal dimension of propitiation. 
Okay? And we're going to talk about the legal dimension from our text of Romans 3.26. Alright? Alright? And we, we see it. Somebody read Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There you go. Just and justifier. Justifier. Hey, it's English spelling. Okay. Did you see that? Now notice for the demonstration, what was the what was the demonstration? Propitiation is what verse 25 is saying. This is verse 25. This is the public demonstration for what purpose? So that God would be seen as just. What's calling into question the justice of God? All the sins that aren't being dealt with. All the sins that are not being dealt with. And Satan is up there going, what are you going to do about all of that? All right. All right. The justifier, I mean, he's just and the justifier. We are the recipients of justification. And what what basically, and we're going to, I think we're going to spend a, some time on this later. What justification is, I, I, it is commonly defined this way. Um, it is as though you have never sinned. Just as though you have never sinned. That is the result. Okay, because you're not treated as a sinner. But actually, what it means is not condemned. Acquitted. And the reason it has to be, there, there's this legal issue of justice is because there is, it's, it's almost like it's a denial of reality. We are guilty. You've all seen, I know you have, seen a very famous trial in which a man, by judging by 99% of the American population, is guilty. The 1% was a jury. 99.99%. And do you remember the outrage? Remember the outrage? Are you not with that, OJ? I'm not. You weren't going to name names? I'm not going to name names. Well, that's what I'm just talking about. I'm just talking about. This is the moral outrage in the universe about us. We are guilty. God, what are you going to do about it? This is legally binding, legally solid. The verdict stands because it is just. So there's a legal dimension to this. Now that doesn't get you too excited unless you're Perry Mason. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, we, you, y'all know about Perry Mason. I don't know. This is all. Yeah, they all they know about is the investigative side of it. Okay, yeah. All right. 
they don't get excited about that. All right. So that's that's the legal dimension. Okay. The next one is the physical dimension of propitiation. Now, this is probably the one that we are most familiar with. Okay. And this is recorded for us where? Where are the physical dimensions of propitiation recorded for us in the Bible? There's four of them. And they're new to, and they're, yes, in the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, okay, there is a record of what? The physical suffering of Jesus, okay? And, and, I want to, and, and, and we need to, I want to make, I want to make the point here, because I made it about the Old Testament propitiation, that this is really a process. That part of this propitiation, it includes Jesus hanging on the cross, but it also includes him being beaten. Okay? It's also... Remember in Isaiah, what does it say? By his blank, we are healed. By his what? By his wounds, by his stripes. So that's a physical. Those, when it said that, it's talking about a, a physical event that took place in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in the first century AD, walked on the earth, flesh and blood. Beaten without mercy. For you. For me. We justly should have been strapped to that post. And and whipped. But Jesus. To take care of the wrath of God. On our behalf. Stepped in. Okay. This includes the nails in his hands, spear in his side, nails in his feet, crown of thorns. It's this whole, it's this whole event that takes place. Now there are those, and we have to be careful with this, who try to, because of the, the emphasis that is placed on the blood in the Old Testament... We'll emphasize it in the New Testament, and that's and that's okay. But it's what you see is the whole thing. Okay, it's the it's the, the whole thing that is a propitiation. So there's legal dimensions to it. There's physical dimensions to it. Now, watch this. All right, and, and I don't even know. I I'm, I'm making up a word here. Okay. So now, if you were R.C. Sproul, nobody would question you. Okay. But you're going to question me. Okay. But so whatever. The soulish dimension, okay, of, is anybody got a better word? Oh, let's deal with it, and then you can give me a better word, okay? All right? So, the, the text that I want you to turn to here is Isaiah 53, 11. Okay? All right? All right, somebody read Isaiah 
53, 11. And I want you to read it deliberately out of, slowly. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see that? You see that phrase, those phrases in there? When he, that is Yahweh, sees what? He, now, what is he going to be? The text says that he is satisfied. That's his propitiation word. That's his, his wrath is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied when he sees something. And what is it that he sees? Anguish of his soul. The propitiation that Christ has given to us is physical in his physical sufferings, but it is also in the anguish of his soul. We see some of that coming out on the cross, don't we? How, how, where, how, where, where do you see this coming out on the cross? Father, where you find you specifically. I mean, it's, it's a quotation of Psalm 22. Yes. My, if, if I wouldn't scare you, I would, I would boom it out. Okay? But lest I be melodramatic and run the risk of scaring small woodland creatures across the railroad tracks, I'll not do it. But the black and white text that you have in your Bible, there's a soul crying out behind that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would venture to say that all of us at some point have experienced some anguish of soul over something. The loss of a loved one. We can just go through a list, a litany of things. But this is, this is, so this is a dimension of propitiation. This, this, is, this is an amazing thing to me. And it's not just an amazing thing to me, it was an amazing thing to the church. The earliest record, and I don't want to be, and again, I don't want to be controversial, I don't have time to be controversial. I'm checking what someone got. Okay, alright, but, but the, the, the earliest, the, the church early in its life, I think caught on to this and sought to express it in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? So earliest formulation of Christian doctrine, it's the earliest systematic theology, right, where they, they wrote down, these are the things that we believe. And there's a line in it that appears in the earliest copies of the Apostles' Creed that has been redacted in later copies. Okay? And, and so here, here's what it says. it says. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
And in His only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, descended into hell, rose again on the third day, and then the rest of the creed. Whoa, where did they get, where did that come from? And, and, there's, and, and throughout church history, there are those who redact it. There are those who put it in. I, I, shall, I shall never forget hearing uh, D. James Kennedy. Remember D. James Kennedy? Okay, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I remember hearing a sermon preached by him. And he was dealing with this subject matter. And I still have, it, I still have the, the, the line. This is something we'll paraphrase. But he's talking about, he's trying to, to capture this. And we, I, I don't want to argue about whether this, I just, I'm just giving you what, what he said, and I think it's thought-provoking. He said, and underneath Christ, the ground opened up, and his soul fell into a cacophony of cackling demons who fell on him tooth and fame. Just trying to catch that that dimension of propitiation. It's just amazing that our Christ, our Lord would do such a thing. But Agonize's soul have his body destroyed, that God would be just in declaring us acquitted. Which then prompts a great question. Why would he do such a thing? And this is the, this is the last dimension. Okay? And it is the emotional. Dimension of propitiation. This is not a sterile academic subject. There's nothing academic about this. Okay. To see this, the depth of this, first John four ten. Somebody read that. This is love, and that we love God, that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you just hear what the word of the living triune God has just said to us? What is motivating propitiation? Love. Don't get hung up in, in this. I mean, I mean the, the language of public display, God being just, God is just in justifying sinners. 
Yes. Yes. This is the public display of the righteousness of God. Yes, it is. That's what this is about. But it is what? It's motivated by the love of God. That's John 3.16, you realize. 1 John 4.10 is just a kind of a theological restatement. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, he propitiated himself in his son Jesus for the world. Here's the takeaway. God loves you. Do you you understand that? God loves you. God loves you. If that doesn't change you, there are not words in my vocabulary. There are not words in the human language to change you. This propitiation is deep. It's contoured. It's textured. It's meaningful. It's the ground of our joy. May God in His Word inspire our souls tonight to rejoice in the demonstration of the love of God on our behalf.